0: Well, our day and age is a hyper-politicized age. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that nearly everything in our lives gets connected to politics. It's the way it works nowadays. And it gets connected to whichever political party you happen to affiliate with. We choose our news based on which channel is going to give us our particular party's opinion, we even shop at places based on what social causes they support or do not support and one of the reasons I think that everything is so connected to politics nowadays is because we tend to believe as a culture at large we tend to believe that the solution to our problems in the world lies in government in some way we, we probably you would never verbalize it this way. But a lot of people tend to think if we can just get the right people in office at the local, state, and national level, then we can effectively change the world. And who really who doesn't want to change the world? It's pretty obvious that, that our world needs changing. I mean, you look around, you see how things are unfolding and happening, and it's very obvious that the world needs to change. And the question, I think, that we ask without maybe verbalizing it is, How exactly do we change the world? We want to badly. We want things to be different. So how do we go about enacting change in the world? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, it's fascinating to see that Jesus comes on the scene here, sort of bursts on the scene in Mark chapter 1, and he announces the arrival and the proclamation of God's kingdom. And if you stop and think about that idea of God's kingdom arriving on the scene, that certainly sounds like a world-changing event, right? God's kingdom has arrived. Okay, things are going to be different now. That's what I would think when I hear him proclaim that. And so it's with that announcement of God's kingdom arrival, the call for people to repent and to believe, what does Jesus do next? What's his next course of action? Now, For us, we may think, okay, if he really wants to change the world, if he wants God's kingdom to arrive, at least one of the first things he has to do, he's got to go talk to Herod. And he's got to go meet with Caesar if he really wants the world to change. That's how he, he needs to do that. And if that's what you think he should do, not that any of you actually think that, but if that's what you suppose that he should do, you really couldn't get much further from reality. Jesus does something on the opposite end of the spectrum from going and meeting with Caesar and Herod. He does something that is completely unexpected. He announces God's kingdom arrival, calls people to repent and believe, and then he simply calls disciples to come to him and be with him. That's what he does. Look at Mark chapter one, verse 16. Verses 16 through 20, I'll read the whole thing. It's just, it's an unlikely next step after proclaiming the kingdom. It's just this very simple passage where he's walking along, calling people to come and follow him. One author described this this combination of passages this way. After the ringing announcement of verses 14 and 15, we are prepared for stirring events of at least national, if not cosmic, importance. What we find is very different. Jesus wandering by the sea, bidding some common laborers to accompany him on a mission. The kingdom of God comes not with fanfare, but through the gradual gathering of a group of socially insignificant, I love that, socially insignificant people in an unnoticed corner of provincial Galilee. That's awesome. The primary way that the kingdom unfolds in our day and age is exactly what happens here in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Jesus calls disciples. That's what happens. God's rule and reign spreads today as men and women are redeemed by his blood and placed on the road, the process of discipleship. This is exactly what we have described in the Great Commission, Right? This is, if you remember back in March, this is the primary command of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Listen to how important discipleship is. This is the first thing Jesus does in Mark after telling people that the kingdom are coming. And it's the very last thing that he does before he ascends to heaven. He calls disciples to himself, and then at the end, he says, go and make disciples. That's how important this concept of discipleship is. This is what the church is all about, making disciples. I've told you as we've started through the Gospel of Mark that this book has two primary themes, and they they go in tandem together, the identity of Jesus Christ, and then with that, showcasing of his identity, it's a call to discipleship. Because of who Jesus is, this is how you respond. You follow him as a disciple. And so you can see on the screen today, you saw at the beginning there that our word for today in this series, Gospel Basics, is discipleship. And this is one of the key elements of the gospel of Mark and of what the gospel means. It means that those who are called to Christ pursue him and follow him in a relationship of discipleship. And so the logical question this morning, when you see this word discipleship on the screen is, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does this look like both in Jesus's day and for us today? If this is what we're supposed to be and as the church, if this is what we're supposed to be about, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And what you see here in verses 16 to 20 is a very a very simple story. Almost too simple to preach a whole sermon off of it in some ways. Jesus basically calls two sets of brothers to be his followers. And you, as you read through this passage, the guys were they were just doing their thing. They were living their normal lives. They were workers. They were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They're, cast, they're in the middle of casting nets. They're working with the hired servants for the family business. And Jesus interrupts their normal existence, calls them to join him in his ministry, and sets them on the road of being a follower of Christ. And so throughout the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see the meaning of discipleship unfolded. This is one of the things that I really want you to see throughout this Gospel. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? But today, in verse 17, is what we're going to key in on. In verse 17, there there are two Uh, actions, two ongoing actions that Jesus gives to his disciples here. And these really summarize what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So today, two ongoing actions of those called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. The first one of these is found at the beginning of verse 17. There it is. Following, following both of these have ing at the end. These are ongoing actions. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to them, follow me. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does this look like? Three things that this looks like for you this morning. First of all, following Jesus is personal. It's personal to follow him. The master and disciple relationship was very common in the ancient world. We've already talked about this a little bit. This was normal for a master and a teacher to have followers who went after him. But what happens here in this passage is very, very unique. See, normally you would have a rabbi, you would have a teacher, and a student would approach the teacher, the rabbi. They would identify someone that they want to learn from. They would approach the teacher and they would say, Can I be your disciple? Can I be your follower? And ultimately, in that relationship, they were seeking out a teacher who could instruct them in the Old Testament law. The ultimate goal, the pinnacle of being a disciple was to learn the Old Testament law. That was what it was all about, to be a disciple of a particular rabbi. Jesus here is acting in the authority of the kingdom that he's begun proclaiming. And you can see here that he initiates the discipleship relationship. He goes along the Sea of Galilee and he calls to both of these brothers and initiates that relationship. And he did not call them to come to him and to study the Old Testament law necessarily. That wasn't the ultimate pinnacle and the goal of his instruction. He called them to come and be with him. The goal of his instruction was that he would demand all of their lives And he would demand all that they are, and they would have a close, personal connection with him as the teacher. The master-disciple relationship was centered on the person of Jesus. He is the goal. And in many ways here, Jesus is more like a prophet than a rabbi or a teacher. He's calling and demanding them to come and to follow him. And you can see here in this passage... You can see in verse 20, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. They dropped everything on the spot and came after Jesus and followed him. They were immediately with him and they were at his disposal. So being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a personal connection to him as the teacher, as the leader. But it's also a process. It's personal, and it's a process. Being a good disciple doesn't happen overnight. These guys weren't immediately mature followers of Jesus. I don't even think they really understood what this meant at the time fully. I I guarantee you they didn't understand what it meant. Look at the wording in verse 17. Follow me, and I will make you become. Right? They're not immediately full disciples. They're going to be entering in to a process of growth and change. And as you read through the gospel of Mark, oh, you see this process of growth and change in these disciples, these followers. They struggle. <laughs> they struggle with fear. They struggle with mistrust. They struggle with self-centeredness. There's that great passage, several of them, where Jesus tells them he's going to go to the cross. And they begin talking about who's the greatest among them. Could you be more self-centered in your discipleship? These guys are going to need to be rebuked over and over again. And they're going to be challenged to live as true followers of Jesus Christ. And when you see that through the gospel of Mark, it helps us to understand that being a disciple of Jesus is a process. And let me encourage us this morning to remember that as we deal with one another. Discipleship is a process, and it's very easy at times to get frustrated with one another. Because we tend to think, ah, you're not as far along. I wish you wouldn't do that. I wish you wouldn't sin in that way. It's very easy to get frustrated with one another. But let's keep in mind here the grace that God has shown to each of us and the fact that he is working in you and in me and in all of us together as we mature in disciples. Now, that certainly doesn't mean we ignore sin and we just sort of overlook it. That's what it, we help one another with that because we want to mature in the process of discipleship. We point out sin that we see in one another's lives because I want to know if, I, if I'm messing up. I want you to tell me so that I can mature in this growth process. And parents, let me just exhort you as a parent myself, this is so important for us to remember as we're working with our kids and as we're discipling our kids. Parenting is a process of making disciples. That's the goal of parenting. Our kids come to us broken, just like you came to your parents broken. They come to us broken. They come to us fallen, And when they are saved, when they enter into this relationship with Jesus Christ, they begin the process of being put back together into whole human beings, mature disciples. That's where they're at. That's what they're pursuing. That's what they're going toward. And so be patient with them as God does his work in them, just like he's done his work in you and I. And so because discipleship is a process, it's a journey we often have no idea exactly where this process is going to take us. You and I don't know where we're going to be two, three, five, ten years from now in this process of discipleship. But wherever you are in this process, even this morning, the primary consideration is that you are committed to the master personally and that you're going to follow closely to him in this process no matter what. One author who I really enjoy described the process of discipleship this way. Eugene Peterson said, There is a great market for religious experience in our world. That's so true. We're always after the latest thing that's going to accelerate our growth rate, our discipleship. This is the key to what you really need to do as a disciple. There's a great market for that in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient Acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. It's a, a long apprenticeship. It's a patient acquisition of virtue. So don't shortchange the process. Your character will not shine in the beauty of Jesus Christ overnight. Neither will your kids. Neither will your grandkids. Give yourself to the slow and steady process of spiritual progress. So discipleship is a personal relationship with Christ. It's a connection to the master. It's a process. And then that process is often going to be painful. It's going to be painful with opposition. Opposition from inside yourself from your desires and opposition from without the world around us impacts our spiritual progress and our discipleship when we're trying to follow jesus it's like the world is breathing this air into our lungs that makes it much more difficult to stay on the journey and to keep running the marathon and to keep going after christ it tells us the world sits on us and tells us that our highest values are immediacy and comfort. And those are the opposite values that you need in entering into this relationship of discipleship with Jesus Christ. The world tells us you ought to be able to get what you want as quickly and as easily as possible. And those are the sort of things that you should value. But that's not the way of following Jesus Christ. That's not the relationship that these disciples enter into here. It's a painful process of discipleship. Christ calls us to come and to die. To die to ourselves each and every day. And to spend our lives, the exciting moments, the dull moments, and everything in between. To spend our lives Dying to self and pursuing him in this process. Like a dog is attached to the heel of his master. That's how we're supposed to be with our Savior. We follow him. We stay close to him even if the road gets difficult. The same author, Eugene Peterson, described Christian discipleship and growth as a long obedience in the same direction. That's exactly what it is. There's no microwave setting on discipleship. It's a plodding endeavor with much opposition from yourself and from the world around you. And it's a painful process. But here's the thing about the process. When I describe it in this way, maybe it's like, I don't know that I want to be. I don't know that I want to be on this journey and this long obedience in the same direction. But here's the thing about the process. This is where it ends up. Look at Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 31. It's on the screen here. Listen to these words from Jesus as he's instructing his disciples on the goal, the end game of this discipleship relationship. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left Discipleship is a long, painful process, but my goodness, the joys, the end result of this is beyond what we can imagine. It is well worth committing yourself to this teacher and to this master. So, following Jesus means committing to his person for the process, the long obedience of growth in the same direction And understanding that that growth process will be met with opposition, both internally and externally. But ultimately, that process is going to end in great joy and great glory as you're with your Savior. So let's work this out here just for a minute in daily life. All right, I want to apply this to a few different groups. First of all, those of you who are still living at home with your parents, those of you who are under 18, there's a few of you in here. Let me talk to you for a minute, all right? What does it mean for you to follow Jesus? What does this look like for you? Don't think of this as primarily an adult thing. This is something your parents do. You can enter into this relationship with Christ now and begin to pursue and to follow him. And I think the the scriptures would say that your primary means of following Jesus is to obey your parents, (laughs) That's the main command that is given to young people, to children in Scripture. And that's the primary place that you will be tempted to buck against the discipleship of Christ, to resist the authority of your parents in your life. And so I would say to you, trust God to lead and guide you through your parents. Now, I know there's a variety of family situations. Not every set of parents is perfect But trust God to use them and to guide you through your parents. For those of you who are now on the opposite end of the age spectrum, let's say it that way. All right. Maybe if you're not under 18, but 65 and older. All right. Discipleship does not stop for you. This process is not over once you hit retirement age at all. It's a process for the whole of your life. It's a long obedience in the same direction for the entirety of your existence on this earth. And so, the time that you have now, maybe when you're retired, this is a critical time period for you in your relationship and your discipleship process. Don't think that you put in your time when you were younger, and now that you're retired, you're a little bit older and a little more tired. that it's time for the younger kids to sort of take over and be really the ones who are engaged and involved in this process of discipleship. The reality is, is that the young people of this church, the young parents, the young single people, the teenagers, all of us, we need you. We need your steady hand, your long growth in the same direction. We need your experience. We need your wisdom. We need your counsel. There's a certain steadiness of faith that comes from 40 and 50 years of walking with the Savior. And that's what the young people here need as they're shorter in their process of discipleship. There's nothing more inspiring to a young believer than to see someone who has walked with Jesus for 40, 50, or 60 years. Who's taken their painful lumps, but is still aggressively putting sin to death. And passionately pursuing their savior in relationship with him. There's nothing better than that. And there's nothing more strengthening to the church than that. And that's why Paul tells Titus to have the older and the younger together in community. Because we all need one another in this process of discipleship. So keep following and helping others to follow. That's what we're here for. That's why we're together. But following is not just something you do personally in your relationship with Christ. And it's not just something we do for one another in the church. There's another aspect to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's the second ongoing action here of disciples. We follow and we fish. We follow and we fish. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Christ's method of expanding his kingdom and announcing his gospel is, is very strange and very wonderful. And in many ways, this is a very odd thing for Jesus to say to his disciples here. It's amazing that Jesus calls broken in process people to join him to do some of the same things that he did to be in this process of discipleship, but also to preach and to proclaim and to share his kingdom, his kingdom's arrival with others. It's amazing that he uses broken vessels to accomplish his work. And he's called us to be a part of that. That's part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We follow and we fish. Now, you are, I'm sure, very familiar with this metaphor, fishers of men, right? We have a, even have children's songs about this, and I won't sing them to you this morning. But I think you probably know the song that I'm speaking of, I Will Make You Fishers of Men. Now, normally, when you hear this and when we sing that children's song, we're thinking of a call to evangelism. We're thinking of going out and sharing the gospel with people as disciples, And I think that's partially true. I think that's partially what this is calling us to. But I don't think that quite gives us the full picture of and the, the, the gravity of what Jesus is, is telling his disciples he's going to, to train them to do. And I don't think it gives us the full gravity of what you and I are called to as disciples of Christ as well. It's really kind of amazing that we take this metaphor of fishing for men as a sort of a positive thing for the fish. I'm not, a, I'm not a very good fisherman or even very engaged in fishing on a normal basis. So some of you are much better at that and are experts on this. But I've been fishing a few times and it almost never works out very well for the fish when the hook gets in his mouth. It's never good for them. It's never a positive thing. And when you think about that, and you think about Christ calling us to be fishers of men, maybe you're sitting there uncomfortably at this point. What is he saying here? He's saying he's going to train his disciples to be those who announce the arrival of God's kingdom, and they call people to repent and believe, and they promise judgment if they don't respond correctly. I think that's what he's calling his disciples to. Now, there's tons of implications of that, but let me let me show that to you. As with many passages in the Gospels, there's an Old Testament precedent for this. And I think this will sort it out a little bit, and then we'll make some application, all right? So turn over with me to Jeremiah chapter 16. Jeremiah 16 and verse 14, and we're going to read a little bit here. And we'll try to work this out and explain it. And I think it'll it'll help you to understand how how much gravity Jesus puts into calling his disciples to be fishers of men. I think we sort of think of this as a flippant thing that we do, and it's nothing like that at all. This is serious business, all right? Jeremiah 16 here. Look at verse 14. Israel, you know, is sinning, worshiping idols, goes into exile. Verse 14, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Here's what's going to be said. But as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had, been, he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Right. So that sounds pretty good. That sounds positive. God's going to bring the people of Israel back to the land. Okay. So sounds good. Let's keep reading a little bit. Behold, verse 16, I am sending for many fishers. I think this is one of the places this metaphor that Jesus uses is coming from. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land, the carcasses of their detestable idols, and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. So it sounds pretty serious there. These fishermen are going to go out and they're going to literally bring judgment on these people. God's judgment for their sin. They're going to call people out in their sinfulness. Let's keep reading, though. Verse 19, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. And then I think verse 21 is the key here. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. And I think when Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, I think he's referring to Jeremiah 16... And I think what's going to happen is these guys are going to go out and by the way they live and by the way that they preach and the message that they give, people are going to know the power of God. They're going to know the name of God and they're going to have to respond or face God's judgment. That's what he's calling his disciples to do. They are the fulfillment of this promise from Jeremiah chapter 16. Now, if you keep reading in the book of Jeremiah, you're a good Bible student, so you know, Eventually, you get to the new covenant promises, the promises of goodness and comfort and blessing on the people. And so I think when Jesus says the fishers of men here, he's talking about a two-sided ministry that they're going to have. They're going to proclaim God's rule and reign, God's authority. They're going to call people to repent and to believe in Christ. And they're also going to point out their sin. And they're going to say, if you keep going down this road... This is not going to go well for you. And I think you see this in Mark chapter 6. You can see both sides of this here. Go to Mark 6, verse 7. I want you to feel the weight and the gravity of what Jesus is calling us to here. Mark chapter 6 and verse 7. This is where he sends his disciples out on sort of a training run. Of what they're going to do. Look what he says. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And look what he says. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and if they will not listen to you when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Judgment there as they proclaim the kingdom. And look at verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, but at the same time, mercy. Look at verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Miracles that demonstrate the authority of God and the arrival of the kingdom. Two-sided ministry that they have here. So what does this mean for us, right? How do we apply this? We are to be those who proclaim both the mercy and the judgment of God. The words, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Not that anyone would say that. It's kind of cliche, but that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we read here in Mark chapter 1 to be fishers of men, this is a sober reminder of what you and I are responsible to do. And this task is to be undertaken with great grace and with great wisdom. You don't just go out and yell at people and scream at people the judgment of God. That's not what Christ is calling them to here. It's not a flippant thing when we speak of God's judgment or when we speak of his grace. This is a serious matter. And people are involved in sin that is going to lead them to a terrible, terrible eternity. And it's going to wreck their lives now. As we do this, as we are fishers of men, it's not judgmental. It's not unkind. But at the same time, it's not unchristian to warn people. Of the consequences of sin. This is one of the things that the church is supposed to do. To be a light to our country and to our world. That says, listen, your passionate pursuit of sin will end not good for you. And we say it with grace and we say it with wisdom and kindness. But this is not going to go well for you. And I love you, and I want you to respond to Christ's authority and his command to repent and believe. Pursuing sin in this way is ultimately going to lead to destruction in this life and eternity without Christ in the next life. Our message is offensive in many ways, but let's not be personally offensive as we share this message. I think when you properly understand what Christ is calling his disciples to here, this is something that will motivate us. This is something that sort of sits on you with a weight, a weightiness and a heaviness. This is what we've been called to here. It's urgent. This is an urgent message and the results are eternal for what happens here. So what does this look like? How should this motivate us? Well, I don't think the answer to this is, ah, oh, it's so urgent, that I go out and make a sign that says, turn or burn, and I stand on the side of the street. I, I don't think that's what Jesus is calling his disciples to here. That treats this flippantly, as if it's really not that big of a deal. A little sign is all that I need to worry about for this. I think what he's saying here is re- there's, there's huge issues at stake Being a fisher of men means following Jesus Christ in everyday life, in every area, in your work, in your parenting, in your relationships with your neighbors. And I think it means that we build friendships with those around us. We enter into relationships with those who don't know Christ. And we do that ultimately with the goal of sharing Christ with them and calling them to repentance and faith. What Jesus is calling us to here is to bring the realities of kingdom life to bear on our lives now and on the lives of others. Testify both in how you live and in what you say to the reality of God's work in the world. This is real. This is a big deal. Offer comfort. Offer hope. But don't be afraid to promise judgment as well. Because that's what Jesus is calling us to here. And that's the reality of the situation. So as you follow, as you follow Christ, fish as well. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Follow and fish. So what's next for you in this arena this week? What does this look like for you? I can't answer that question. What step do you need to take next in your life to follow more passionately, to fish more faithfully. One of the things that I think is so amazing is the promise of reward that we read in Mark 10 as we do this, as we pursue following and fishing faithfully. Pray for God's grace this week to motivate you to respond to this call in faith and in obedience. Let's pray.